0: Gospel, the 16th chapter. This is the last time I'll ask us to go to that chapter. We will conclude John 16 this morning. Stand together once more for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. am going to begin in verse 28. I came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, you now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own And will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Thus far the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray together. O Lord, according to your appointment, we are gathered for worship. In our worship, according to your appointment, we are gathered to come unto the word. We pray, O God, in this that you have appointed, the preaching of the word which men deem foolish, that you would magnify Christ, that he would be lifted up and exalted, that he would draw all men unto himself. Lord, open our hearts and give us understanding. Attend the preaching and hearing of your word by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. You have given us the Spirit, and you've promised to bless us by the Spirit of truth. Lord, now be magnified in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Sinclair Ferguson says, We would be naive Christians if we imagined that we can always understand what God is doing. But we have a Father who is working all things together for his children's good. Jesus has been teaching his disciples, in this passage he's referring to, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that suffering becomes the raw materials in the Father's hands. And from it, he means to create glory. Sorrow will lead to joy. End of the quote. That's what we've heard Jesus declare. You may recall the Apostle Paul instructed us with the same truth when we were in Romans God is the potter, and we are the clay, and at times his work to shape us hurts. But it is never in vain or without a purpose. God's design is to transform us into the image of his Son. Paul puts it this way. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And he goes on to the next chapter saying, In our light affliction, which is but for a moment, He's working for us a far ex- more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's from 2 Corinthians 3 and, and then later on in chapter 4. The time between suffering and glory is often quite long. But in the case of the disciples, Jesus has told them that in this particular suffering, it is but a little while. And they must endure from Friday until Sunday morning. No doubt it will seem an eternity for them. These men who have walked with Jesus had been his constant companions. When he has been taken away, it would have seemed like an eternity. But it really was only a little while. And then their sorrow, ever so deep, was turned to joy, a joy that began to unfold and They grew in their understanding of it. Now, this conversation seemed to the disciples to be cryptic and hard to understand. That's what's been going on as they've been hearing Jesus' discord. But Jesus then told them plainly in verse 28, as I read it again, I came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world, and again I leave the world and I go to the Father. (laughs) Suffering is always hard. And we can imagine the relief that these 11 men experienced later in that day after the resurrection when the truth of what had taken place became clear to them. Jesus had to suffer. He had to die in order to purchase salvation for those whom the Father had given to him. And in time that we come very clear to the disciples to remember the promise of the Holy Spirit who would lead them into all his truth and indeed lead them along to write the scriptures that we, the church, down through the generations might understand as well. It's interesting in the text that we find these disciples, they think they really have understood something as much as these verses before us this morning have said, but they have only grasped a little of what Jesus is speaking to them. The hour has now come, and y'all will be scattered and will leave me. This morning, I want to use four main headings, truth about Jesus, realities about us, perhaps we could have said truths about us, Jesus' promised peace, and two enduring truths. The thing I want you to see and go away with is that no matter what, no matter the suffering, Jesus has overcome the world and therefore we can experience peace from him even in the midst of trials and tribulations begin then with the truths about jesus the hour is late jesus has been talking about his hour his hour has come he is already in the midst of it that time is unfolding and soon even this band of brothers who have walked with him 3 years will find themselves in a garden very soon an angry band of men will arrive with torches and clubs Jesus will be arrested and taken away, and the disciples will scatter, each to his own home. They will go away shaken to the very core of their being. Though he's been telling them that this moment would come, that the religious leaders would arrest him, that the the pagan nation that ruled over them would put him to death, it just all seemed too far-fetched. It's important for them to be reminded of one truth that Jesus has declared quite frequently. It is important that they hear him plainly, and so he spoke plainly. And the disciples understood what Jesus meant. I came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world, and again, I leave the world and go to the Father. But this statement is not just about Jesus' home address and that he will soon return there. While this is true, the real point of what Jesus is declaring with clarity is that he is the Son of God. This has been his message. I started reading through John's gospel, just consecutively again, it's important to do. I would encourage you to do that. We've been in it for, for, for a couple of years now. And to just remember the context of the whole. And it's interesting to reflect back and see Jesus announcing who he was, why he came, and early on declaring that he was the Son of God. And then there's all the demonstrations that he is, who he said that he was first thing we see even in this text, in this statement in verse 28 is, he speaks of his eternal and divine origin. He is God come in the flesh. He came from the Father. He is God incarnate, the one the prophets foretold. Jesus' entire ministry has demonstrated this truth. It is impossible that any mere man could do the things that he has done. Jesus has carried out his ministry as he declared back in um, chapter 3 and 4, and other places along the way, he does what he sees his father doing. He says what he hears his father saying. He's not confused. He, he's not someone trying to figure out who he is, as the liberal scholars would suggest. Jesus was not trying to find himself. He knew who he was. He came from the Father, and he obeyed the Father. He always did the will of the Father. He was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. That is to say, uh, he could not have had any more of the Holy Spirit than he did. He was full and overflowing. And as the Son of Man, he always knew what the Father wanted him to do, what to say, what to do, who to yield. He understood the will of the Father. And indeed, what we see demonstrated is what John records. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He came into the world to save sinners. Having come into the world, Jesus says, now it is time for me to return to the Father. This was the truth that the disciples had come to understand. They say as much in verse 30, now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. They've known this. Uh, Some of them have confessed this, sometimes on behalf of the whole or individually. But there's a growing in their knowledge, even as we experience when we first believe. We grow in our understanding, and these men are. Jesus claimed to be deity, and these men had come to understand this truth as the Holy Spirit enabled them. No man arrives at this understanding apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. Again, I was struck in the earliest parts of John's Gospel how clear John records and announces the sovereignty of God, that it is God who works. And apart from God, nothing happens within a dead sinner. Do you believe that Jesus is fully God? Do you believe that he has come forth from the Father? These men confess that, as we often do, but it really is demonstrated when it comes down to how we live, particularly in times of trouble. The second thing that we see in this passage is Jesus speaks of his incarnation. I came forth from the Father and I have overcome and I've come into the world. The Son of God, eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, came into the world and took to himself our humanity. Through the incarnation, the powerful working of the Holy Spirit upon the Virgin Mary, God became flesh and he dwelt with man, Emmanuel. Now in this Here with Jesus speaking, the verb tenses that Jesus used makes it clear that what happened in the past, him becoming man, has an enduring reality. He hasn't become man for a moment and will cease to be united to man. He will endure as the God-man. He will remain united to our flesh, our humanity, as the ages roll on. He says, I have come into the world. This coming included the Incarnation his sinless life, and all his ministry, his coming into the world. When he says that, it's not just the birth in Bethlehem. And indeed, his coming into the world is, is a statement about the fullness of his ministry, including those years that the Scripture is silent about, but certainly in including all of the things that are recorded in the Scripture. And he came to save, even as we are in the midst of Isaiah now, where we hear the prophets speak of this suffering servant, For this purpose he came into the world. It was necessary that in order to save us, he had to become the man of sorrows. The Son of God, who is the judge of all men, came to lay down his life and to redeem a sinful and condemned people. is that not remarkable? That the judge, the just one who condemns the guilty, then should take the penalty that the guilty deserve. There is no greater demonstration of love than this, that God, The Son gave Himself to save His people, to save those whom the Father has given Him. The judge himself received the penalty that he dispensed. Jesus also came to reveal the glory of the Father. We've seen that. The majesty of God displayed as Jesus is doing the will of His Father. It's displayed through his miracles and his works, through his word, for he is the word of God. And as he speaks to proclaim, we are hearing God speak in the word who he is. And thus in Christ we see the fullness of the Godhead, for in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as Paul will write later on. Do you believe that Jesus is? Is God in the flesh? Do you believe that Jesus, the Son of Man, is the Son of God who has come to save sinners? Is this your confession and what you believe? Do you accept Jesus as the only one who can set you free from sin, deliver you from the pangs of hell, and carry you into heaven that you might have relationship with the Father forever and ever? The third thing we see is that Jesus reveals that he is now leaving the world to go to the Father. Jesus will go to the Father by the way of the cross. The way to the crown is through the cross. The way to glory is through suffering. And as our high priest, he must carry his blood into the presence of God the Father to atone for our sins. And so it is that he ascended on the high, carrying his blood into the holy of holies that the temple and the tabernacle were but a shadow of. He carries his blood and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat, not one crafted under the administration of Moses, but indeed the actual one that the other was patterned after. He carries his blood, not the blood of lambs and rams and goats, but indeed the blood of the Son of Man, the Son of God. And as a high priest, he ascends to the Father, And he sprinkles his blood there where it ever speaks for us. Father, forgive them, for I have paid the penalty that they owed. I have satisfied our divine justice on their behalf. Again, do you believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Is your hope found in him and him alone, looking to no other? Is it your confidence that his blood is atoned for your sin? That his blood has washed away the stain and the guilt of your sin? Oh, blessed be God, that these can be realities even for us now here on the earth. This has not been your case. If you're not found in Christ, he bids you come. He says, come to me. He says, I will not cast you out. That is a marvelous promise, Promise: whosoever will may come. We heard Paul declare that at least twice in the book of Romans. And so he returned to the Father, and there he took his rightful place at the Father's right hand. And he now rules and he reigns from the throne of God over the nations, just as David had prophesied in Psalm 2. And therefore, Jesus speaks as the Lord's anointed. He speaks to the nations, to the rulers of the earth, tremble. Tremble, you who would seek to rebel against the mighty one. Tremble, lest he strike you. And so it is. Jesus is there now, serving as our high priest, ever making intercession for us. These are the truths about Jesus revealed in the Word of God God so loved that he sent. Jesus so loved that he came. And he went to the cross. When his work on earth was done, Jesus ascended back into heaven. There he is doing the will of the Father, serving those who believe on his name, ever living to make intercession for us. As he in part of his divine all-knowing, he's ruling over the nations, and he's especially caring for the church. As we were reminded earlier by our elder the vastness of the universe, uh, the incomprehensible number of the stars that our God knows by name. He, He suspended them and he sustains them and he calls them by name. this God cares for you, sister and brother. That's the wonder of his eminence, that he with such majesty and over all this great creation with dominion that he cares for us. The scripture says in another place, your, hand, your name is written on his hands. And he ever lives to make intercession for you. These are truths about Jesus. We've seen so many of these. We're drawing together, uh, in a sense, this is a summary as Jesus is concluding in his discourse. And he draws these things. He focuses on these things. But then he also, in this passage, he reveals some things about us. The realities about us, our second point, Uh, the disciples responded to these words uh, from a heart of faith. His disciples said to him, see, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Surely he has done that. We considered that before. He's, you know, parables, word pictures, metaphors, images, shadows, types. But here, verse 28, they've heard him speak so plainly. And that's in their response in verse 30, Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Now this is not a declaration that they just, oh, finally had a moment. But there's something uh, growing in their faith. These men are men of faith. The Holy Spirit has worked in them, and they have been following after Christ because the work of regeneration has been done in them. The one that that was not true of has gone out into the night he's going out to, to do his dastardly deed under God's appointment and according to the will of God these men though and when i say this we understand what i'm about to say because how jesus responds these men in this aha moment were overly bold overly pleased with themselves and jesus asked them do you all now believe some commentators want to translate this as Jesus declaring a statement that you now believe. But it's a question in the te- original text. And it's not just a question of the certainty of it, the question seems to be about the degree of their understanding. Do you now believe? Do you really believe as much as you think you believe? Jesus would have them to remember their weakness that has been so often on display as they've walked with him. And they've seen him feed the 5,000. And then with a figure of speech, he speaks of the leaven of the Pharisees and all they can think about. did we, Oh, we forgot to bring bread. You see this weakness, this misunderstanding, a confusion that is ever with them. Unless we become overbold and proud, we would have been just like them, just as confused. Apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks to them rather soberly. He speaks of a sober reality. He goes on to say, very soon they will falter. They will forsake him. This is a marvel, this confession from them, and yet when it comes to tribulation, they will scatter. Like these men, we too are often unaware of how far we are from having great faith. Mature faith, strong faith. But you see, God does not cast us off because of a little faith. We're encouraged rather to pray like the man, Lord, help my unbelief. Take what little I have and work with it, even as Jesus did with a Syrophoenician woman. A little faith, and Jesus exercised her faith as he, uh, in a sense, seems to oppose her. And yet her faith rises and it grows. And so it is. Persecution will try Faith unlike any other furnace. It is there that we discover the measure of our faith, and those who go about boasting will be brought low. John Calvin points out that it's as if Christ said to them, Do you boast as if you were full of faith? A trial is a hand which will disclose how little your faith is. Here's a lesson, sister and brothers. Let us restrain our self-confidence. When we are inclined to freely boast, let us remember, let not him boast who puts on his armor as him who takes it off. The point is, it's easy to be boastful and proud going into the battle, but how does it turn out in the battle? And so often when we are overbold and self-confident, self-reliant, that is then we falter. I'll tell you a little secret that for ministers, often the worst day of the week is the day after the Lord's Day. As the Holy Spirit has filled them and used them and great things have been accomplished in the preaching of the word, that God should be glorified, ministers are most vulnerable on the next day. You know something of that yourself. When you've had a wonderful, glorious moment, we often call them mountaintop experiences, when God has revealed something to you or brought you through some great trial, and you're just euphoric in what God has done Beware, for then you are most vulnerable. It's not that the disciples had no faith. They, they were scattered later that night from the Garden of Gethsemane. No, it was that their faith was so weak and almost gave way because of the severity and the suddenness of the trial that came upon them. They're still in disbelief that the things that Jesus has described to them that will soon take place, that they cannot even imagine that this would be the case. You know, so often we say to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Well, they have been duly forewarned, and yet they've not taken it to heart. And Suddenly when the trial rushes upon them, they give out. What we see here is two very real dangers that we face as Christians in the world. When danger rises or persecution comes, we are tempted to run away, to scatter, even to forsake Jesus closely related to this, is a temptation to renounce the lover of our soul. We need but remember Peter. Peter gave this confession. We heard his confession uh, as recorded in uh, Matthew 16. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, the very thing that John is writing that we would understand. And we've seen them confess that in Peter's confidence. He too would have been one here who would have said, we believe that you came forth from God. And then just hours later, he denies that he ever knew him. These things were written for our instruction. The same weakness that can lead these can also lead us to being led astray by false doctrine, by being caught up in heresies, carried along by the winds of heresy, pulled down by worldliness or just giving way to the appetites of our flesh. If we're going to withstand in the face of such powerful and destructive forces, then we must keep our faith grounded upon Jesus Christ. We must look to no other. So we live our lives with the eye of faith from from the heart and from the soul. By the blessing of the Spirit, we must ever keep Christ before us, the exalted one who abides with us. If we're going to withstand such destructive forces, just as Jesus has said in the previous chapters, we must abide in Him, as the branch abides in the vine. It is only in this way that we bear fruit for the glory of God the Father. Again, I ask you some questions: Have you taken your eye off from Jesus? Are you looking at the headlines? instead of the head of the church in these days of uncertainty and trial? It's like Peter, looking at the waves of turmoil around him. He took his eyes off of Christ and he began to go down. My brothers and sisters, we can do that. If we look at the situation, the circumstances, the waves and turmoil around us that are ever present in the world, if we take our eyes off of Christ, we will sink as well. Have you become complacent in prayerfulness and meditating upon Word of God. Be wise and do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Let your fellowship be with the people of God, and indeed, most especially with God, with God the Father, as we heard last week, through prayerfulness. We commune with God, and this is eternal life, to know the Father. Let us, as the psalmist goes on to say, let us delight and meditate in the law of the Lord, and then we shall be like a tree planted by the streams of living water, bringing forth fruit to the glory of God in our season. Yes, we are saved by faith, but we grow in holiness through obedience and effort. just started a book, some of you probably have read, J.C. Ryle's Holiness, and one of the things he seeks to set out in that is, yes, we are justified by faith in Christ alone, full stop. That is a justified people. We are then called to live holy lives, to grow in sanctification. And that is a cooperative work between us and God, yielding to him. Our sanctification is assured and secured by Christ and his sacrifice, but we grow in holiness. Peter quotes Isaiah, be ye holy as I am holy. God speaking through the prophet. That still is true for us today. We must... Indeed, seek to put on Christ and put off the flesh. Well, the third thing we see in the text is Jesus' promise of peace. Jesus tells the eleven that though they will scatter from him, he's told them this is going to happen, they're going to leave him alone. But he says he will not be alone, verse 32, because the Father is with me. Even as the Father has ever been present with him in that time, Of his greatest trial, he would not be alone. We saw something of that from our passage in Isaiah that we just heard moments ago. The testimony of the suffering servant, the Father, will vindicate him even in the midst of his suffering. And so Jesus has warned his disciples, and now he comforts them. Verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. One would hope that after they've scattered, when the armed men have come, as they're running away to their homes in the darkness of the night, that the words of Christ, that they would have peace in him, would resonate. Jesus has given them peace before. It's not the first time he's talking about his peace. Look back at John 14, 27. Jesus is in in those hours in the upper room. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. We could imagine that all through that evening as they're hearing these things and uh, the, the echoes of his words of coming suffering would have been uh, around them that Jesus spoke to them. He says, My peace I leave with you. And again he declares to them, In me you may have peace. It's not just words. It's not just promise. It's in Christ that we have peace. That was his promise to them. Sisters and brothers, we are not exempt from trouble in the world. Our trouble is not as exactly as these men have, but indeed the opposition of the world that came against them as they went on into their ministry, we face that same opposition. Jesus has been direct about this. The world has persecuted me. The world will persecute you because you belong to me. This is the reality. When troubles come, though, we have a rock in which we are... Secure. We have a place of refuge and safety. Just this week, one evening, I walked out along the side of the cove there by where we live and the wind was up coming off the water and I saw a little tiger swallowtail butterfly, a frail creature being buffeted and driven by the wind. And and even as I watched it, it seemed frantic to somehow escape the wind that that threatened uh, the frailty of its wings. And I watched as it, Settled down, there was large rocks that they positioned to stop erosion. And that butterfly in the midst of the storm, it went into the rocks. It went down into the crevice of the rock, the cleft of the rock. And there it was free from wind. And there it sat with its wings upheld in a stillness. It was in peace. It had found a place of peace and refuge in the rocks. Such a vivid picture. This is the reality of Christ. Our peace is from him. He is the rock to whom we look. He is the one, the place of security and and safety. We have peace in him. We have peace because of our union with him by faith alone. But Jesus also gives us peace with God. We have peace in Christ and therefore, being united to Christ, we have peace with God the Father. And Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we are washed as white as the driven snow. Jesus also gives us the peace of God. In Christ, we are reconciled to God, and the peace of God comes to us. How is it that we get this peace? Remember our focus last week? Prayer and prayerfulness, talking to God. The peace of God comes as we talk with God the Father through Jesus the Son by the inward working of the Holy Spirit. God our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in us to give us peace. but that peace was secured in Christ, through Christ, at the cross. This is exactly what Paul writes about in Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing. Notice that? All-encompassing. Be anxious for nothing. We, we, we want to have our little caveats. Well, I know he's talking about that, but this, this is unique. Paul wasn't talking about that. Was Yeah, be anxious for nothing. He goes on to say, but in everything by prayer and supplication. See, there's a the solution. With thanksgiving, something we often leave out. That's why I commend to you as one of your structures, Acts, or the Lord's Prayer, where the thanksgiving is in it. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and then what does he say? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see, prayer is not a little add-on. It's not just something that we can pick up and lay down, perhaps like an umbrella on a rainy day. We need to commune with God every moment of every day. Like Paul, pray without ceasing. He said, I pray for you upon every remembrance of you continually in prayer, praying without ceasing. That's the way we should live. Jesus told the disciples they could have this peace also through his word. Again, look at verse 33. These things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. Just quick to kind of gloss over that. We can easily miss that. Jesus is speaking. He's the living word. He is speaking. He the word that John introduced at the outset of this, this uh, wonderful gospel. The word is speaking to them. He says, I've spoken these things to you. I have given you my word that you may have peace. Now, when Jesus says these things I've spoken to you, it's not just this particular revelation that he's going to the Father. It's everything that he's spoken to them that very night. This has been one of Jesus' main focuses in what we know as the upper room discourse. He knows the wave that is about to break upon these men whom he loves. And he is preparing them. He has been teaching them so that they would have peace. It's one of his main purposes. All that he taught and all that he did that evening was designed to prepare for them for the events that would suddenly rush upon them. He wanted them to have peace. My friends, we can take this up for ourselves as well. The more of the Word of God we know, the more that the truth of the word of God is in us and understood by us, the more we'll be grounded on Jesus Christ, the rock, and we can face trials and troubles in a sense perfect, perfect peace can be ours. The third way that we have peace that passes human understanding is by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in this upper room discourse, had Taught, has taught about the Holy Spirit. This is the most extensive instruction that he's ever given. The Spirit's been mentioned. Um, he's the woman at the well. He speaks of worshiping in spirit. In truth, we understand that is to have the Holy Spirit within us. There's been other things as well that he has said along the way. But Jesus would have us to understand that we would, should have the Holy Spirit. This is his promise that we'd have the Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit, what has he said about him? this his very name, the Comforter. When times are troubling, what is it we need? A Comforter. My friends, Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit. So it's not an empty thing for him to say to his people, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He's given us the Holy Spirit so that we would have a Comforter, that we would know his peace, no matter the trials, no matter the situations. Have you read some of the autobiographies of men and women of the faith? and what's their testimony? These very things. In the midst of great trials and tremendous difficulties, they had peace. God was with them. Indeed, the person of the Holy Spirit was with them, ministering to them the precious promises of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that paraclete. Who stands with us. He abides with us. And he never leaves us throughout all our days and even into eternity as well. My friends, when we arrive in glory of glorified bodies free from sin, the Holy Spirit does not depart from us. And indeed, it's by the Holy Spirit that we have union with Christ. And that will never end. So dare I say to us all, let's get familiar with the Holy Spirit. Let us learn to look at him. He is our everlasting companion. And oh, what a companion he is. That even now here in this veil of tears and all the trials that are ever around us, we can know the peace of God. Christian, do you know this peace of Jesus? Are you abiding in Christ, in his word, taking up and using the wonderful, marvelous gift of prayer, communion with God? Do you know the blessings that Christ has secured for you? Fourthly, our last point two enduring truths Jesus leaves the men who have followed him to leave uh, to the end to, Jesus leaves these men in his discourse with two final statements two truths verse 33 the second half in the world you will have tribulation it's a certain statement isn't it sometimes you know maybe kind of tough no in the world you will will have tribulations. We should not be surprised when things are difficult, when tribulations, suffering, affliction, sorrows, overwhelm us. This is the nature of this world under the sun because of Adam's sin in the garden so long ago. The world is cursed. We are cursed. And if we belong to Jesus, the world will be against us, even as it was against. Our Lord and Savior, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's be honest with one another. We get surprised when trouble comes, don't we? Don't we? We tell others about, oh, I can't believe what happened. How's it going? Oh, it's just terrible. I don't know where this came from. Jesus said, in this world you will have Tribulation. This word, tribulation, we get our English word from a Latin word that uh, is used to describe the process of threshing wheat. Children, they would harvest the wheat. From the field while the grain was standing, they would cut it off at the bottom of the stalk and carry the bundles to the threshing floor. And they would take a flail, often a a stick or maybe two sticks connected by a chain, and they would beat the wheat with the goal of smashing the heads of the grain to separate the wheat out from the chaff that enclosed it. And our word for tribulation comes from the Latin word for that instrument, the flail. Tribulation sounds different now, doesn't it? But you see, tribulation is God-ordained flailing to test our faith. Faith that is tested is then an exercised faith. An exercised faith is a growing faith. Your muscles don't become strong just by looking at them and willing them to grow strong. It it takes the strain and the struggle of, of working and using those muscles and whatever means to strengthen those muscles, we see God has appointed the flailing of tribulation to strengthen and grow our faith. Matthew Henry says, men design to cut believers off from the earth. That is with tribulation. When men set themselves upon us, Matthew Henry said, "Men desi- their design is to cut believers off from the earth, even through death. This will happen to some of our sisters and brothers today. He goes on, and God's design by affliction is to make them ready for heaven. And so between the both, man's design, God's design, we shall have tribulation. Christ has told the disciples that in him we have peace, and in the world we have tribulations. This should teach us to leave off following the world. Why are we so enamored with the world? Why are we so concerned about being accepted by the world? about the world being pleased with us, uh, smiling at us, giving us accolades. The world does not care about us, not even one moment. The world hates us. Leave off following the world. Follow Christ. We waste so much effort. We should take that energy and effort and apply it to growing in faith, growing up in Christ. Our efforts with the world must be to warn them of the wrath that is to come, and to hold out Christ to them as the only hope for salvation. But we're not there to cuddle up and to be comfortable with the world. The world just wants to flail us, to separate us, to cut us off. Let us look to God. Jesus spoke another great truth then in, in this context, that in this world we have tribulation. He says, I have overcome the world. Notice the tense, the tense of the verb. It's, it's, it's already done. Jesus accomplished this victory by his incarnation, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. He, in this, crushed the serpent's head. He had to be bruised in the heel in order to crush the serpent's head. Jesus' victory is the reason why we have life and liberty to no longer sin. Jesus came and defeated a foe that we never could. We were powerless against sin, death, and the grave. And yet Jesus is all-powerful. He has overcome the world. Jesus is the victor. Therefore, we should cling to him and not to the world. We should cling to the one who has come to do us good, not the one who has come to destroy us. Oh, that we would remember that when the temptations fly, that we would, by the shield of faith, look to Christ, remember his promises, take up the sword of the Spirit, and wage war against the evil one, even as our brother John has preached to us in recent weeks. Jesus is the victor. He has overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it is only in him that we will prevail. We sit on the other side of the events that were unfolding for this then that night. And we know that what Jesus spoke of, we know what's right before him. The shadow of the cross is looming. We know that. They still have no idea. They don't understand what is about to befall them. What will soon envelop them, But Jesus did. And he did not shrink back. He stepped forward. Again, back to our passage from Isaiah. His face was like flint. He was undeterred. He was going to obey the Father. He went and laid down his life. It was not taken from him. He laid down his life to accomplish the will of the Father. He made himself A sacrifice for sin. As our high priest, he offered up his humanity on the uh, deity as the altar. This is why the writer of Hebrews says in verse 12, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. We know that. Let us run with endurance, there's exercise, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, not a crown, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's the crown, and for, for consider him, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Most often we think of bloodshed being persecuted for Jesus' name, and indeed many have been. There is a great host of martyrs around the throne of God crying out even now to he who is seated on the the throne, How long, O Lord, before you vindicate our blood? But here, he says, resisting to bloodshed, striving against sin. We give in before it gets that hard too often. We give way. But we have one who has gone before us, and that in him we can be more than conquerors. So we conclude... Ask you a question: Would you like to spend an evening with Jesus? Think about it. Just, just spend an evening with Jesus, just listening, You're like Mary, just seated at his feet, just drinking up everything he has to say. What would you give for such a privilege? That's what these men have done, and we, sisters and brothers, we have had just done. We have done just that over the last seven months. It's not been an evening, it's been seven months as we have taken up that which transpired in an evening. is by God's blessing, stuttering, stammering, yet it has been opened up and explained. This inspired text of Scripture, we have heard a faithful exposition of it, but we've only just begun to scratch the surface of what is here. John 13 to 16. I want to encourage all of you all, to revisit this passage. Perhaps just this afternoon as a family, sit down and open the scriptures and just read 13 through 16 together. You've heard most of it. Some of you have heard all of it. It's all available to download. I want to encourage you to revisit that. Listen to the sermons. Listen to other sermons who have preached on this passage. I also want to commend to you a recent book from Sinclair Ferguson, Lessons from the Upper Room. I quoted from him in this work from the beginning of the sermon. I only recently came to own a copy of this heartwarming volume, The Gift for a Birthday. Commend to you. Sinclair Ferguson, Lessons from the Upper Room. It'll be a wonderful summary, but also oh, <laughs> looking at the same text from the wisdom and vantage of this godly, mature man, If you've read Sinclair Ferguson, you know how well he writes, how devotional, how direct, how pastoral, how wonderful. We've seen in this intimate setting what we have, but what have we learned? We have seen the heart of our Savior. We have heard how he prepares the eleven for the events that will soon rush upon these much-loved men. And we've seen how tender and loving Jesus is with them, with us. And our weakness, with our frailties, Jesus comes with our little faith, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not snuff out. There he is, our stumbling steps along the path that he has appointed with us, ever present to guide us. We're not done. Teaching that this passage is done. Jesus is done teaching them in this sense of teaching. But what we're going to see is profound. Jesus is going to teach them to pray. The Holy Spirit has inspired John to record Jesus' high priestly prayer. What a privilege. You want to know what Jesus prays for us even now? I think we see something of that in this chapter 17. This will be our focus for the next 10 sermons. This morning we have learned more about Jesus as well as more about ourselves. Or perhaps we've been reminded about things that we've forgotten about ourselves and about Jesus. But let us depart knowing that Jesus has spoken to us so that we may have his perfect peace and have a confidence because Jesus has overcome the world. Amen. Let us pray. O oh, living, mighty God, we marvel at the the detail, the, the intimacy to, in a sense, be able to eavesdrop into the events that took place that night in the upper room. As the Holy Spirit moved John, a, a holy man chosen by God, along to record these things with accuracy, with clarity, with with a structure and organization to unfold them in a, in a way that is for our usefulness. O oh Lord God, as we have been blessed, let us remember to whom much is given Much is required. Lord, bless us to live in the light of these truths, to share these truths one with another, to encourage, to spur one another on in our walk here on earth, in our life under the sun. We might do all to the praise and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in Him we would walk as more than conquerors. For the world watches us, Lord. May our walk and our profession of faith be in harmony that we would not profane the name of the one who gave himself for us. And Lord, we bless you and thank you that indeed for our sins, even in this area, that we have forgiveness through your Son. Oh, how precious is Christ to us. How beautiful is the, the morning star, the rose of Sharon, who has come to give life to men. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing number 348.